Stu here. I'm very proud to announce that Spoilers, my award-winning climate change comedy show, is returning to the Edinburgh Festival on the 12th, 13th and 14th of August. You can get your tickets at stuartgoldsmith.com on the little orange banner, or you can just go to edfringe.com and search my name. I mean, that's what I'd do. Whether you're a die-hard, north-face-wearing climate dude, or whether you are just a regular person who's a little bit nervous about all the news you're seeing and doesn't really know what to think, there's something there for you. It's really fun and funny, and I think you're going to love it. See you there. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. The tour is officially underway. If you'd like to come and see my stand-up show, we've already knocked off uh, Southend and Pool, which are both a huge amount of fun, thanks to any pod faces who came out to those. And we are next in Crawley, Brighton, Dublin, Manchester, Exeter, Bath, Harrogate, Birmingham, Hull, Shrewsbury, Bristol, and now in Darleydale, Meesham and Droitwich. Those last three places, of course, I've made up. They used to be on the DFS advert when I grew up. But if you're at any of those places, then go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour and you can enter the code Vera at any of those uh, tour ticket links to come and see the stand-up show. It's been so much fun so far. I'll tell you a little bit more about it at the end of the show. But for now, I'm very pleased to be bringing you an excellent comic. He's a, he's a, what does he do? He's a comedian. He's a funny person. He's done some telly. You might have seen him on Have I Got News For You? Some other bits and bobs recently as well. Um, and you might have seen him in his three-hander sketch show, Daphne. He is, as we will learn, a man who was beaten with sticks as a child. Well, if that's how you make people funny, let's all hit our children with sticks. Very much not the message of this podcast. I take that back and rescind it utterly. This is Phil Wang. So you were saying when you came here that you had, a, after you asked to be on the show, you had a moment of shame. Yes. So I, I, I don't, not entirely, I can't entirely remember when I asked you, but it was a, a brief moment of hubris. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if I just had a good gig the night before and I thought, people need to know how I do this. Uh, and then I just dropped you messages with the, with the secret passphrase. Yes. About well, your beautiful daughter. Good use. And, um, and then you said, sure. And then afterwards I just felt, who, I just thought, who do you think you are, Phil Wang? Asking to be on a podcast about your process. But that's it, I am glad to be here. <laughs> the, the funniest thing to me about that is that you even give yourself a surname when you're talking to yourself. I love, like, your, yeah. your, your kind of, one of your persona traits on stage is that you always use your full, your full name. Mm. And I love that that bleeds into social comedy stories. What, who do you think you are, Phil Wang? <laughs> the yeah. idea of you sitting at home saying that to yourself. If I'm in trouble with myself. Yeah, yeah yes. like, like a parent. Oh, I see. I Phil Wang. But the, the, the Phil Wang thing, seeing Phil Wang on stage... It is quite, it's quite recent, and it's just, I realize people always refer to me as Phil Wang. Even friends say, oh, hi, Phil Wang. Uh, they never say, hi, Phil. I don't know if it's just because it's just nice, two punchy, monosyllabic names. And it's fun Phil to Wang. say. Yeah, it's fun to say. 
Um, and people always say it with a smile, which is nice. And so I just started saying on stage, I'm Phil Lang, Phil Lang. And it also means people haven't seen you before remember your name afterwards. Great. I mean, and you get a lot of, um, you get more Twitter followers. It's a Phil Wang networking seminar. I mean, it is, that, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> just very useful, right? I always think Stuart Goldsmith is cumbersome and I can never be bothered to say the whole name. And mm. I probably have got far fewer Twitter followers, but that isn't the only Whereas reason. Whereas ComComPod is fun to say. Yes. And so... Or it's hard it, to find online. Unless you're looking Twitter at ComComPod. Uh-huh. The, the ComComPod doesn't really... I think maybe you'd get the... It doesn't matter. So, the point I was going to make is that actually I remember when you got in touch about doing the show, I think you had just done, or were just about to do, Have I Got News For You? And I was thinking... And I, I reacted maybe like other people in the comedy industry, such as it exists. That was one of those, Holy shit, Phil Wang's doing Have I Got News For You? Did mm. you think that? Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> no, I think I'd have to get my head checked if I went, that seems about right. Yeah, I should be on this show. Um, uh, I, uh, yeah, I was, I was amazed when I found, found out. Um, and it was the first time I felt, mum will be proud of this. Because it's, 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 I remember watching Have I Got News For You in Malaysia. My mum would like bring cassettes from, so my mum's British. I'm, I grew up in Malaysia. My dad's Malaysian. But my mum would bring um, Have I Got News, News For You on, on cassette. And I watched them. And there, it was like, I think it was the first British comedy I ever saw. And then so to be in that chair, sat next to Ian Hislop. And then at the end, to see those panels turn behind you. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it was a real out-of-body experience. I couldn't really believe it. So it, it seems to me like everything is coming up Phil Wang right now. For now. Um, yeah, it, things are going all right. And I think from conversations we've had in the past, I have gleaned, I think, that you are fairly canny. You're fairly shrewd when it comes to your career. So when I got that email from you, I, well, you know, in the, you, and we'll talk about this in a bit, but yeah. you've released your shows on YouTube. You've had that conversation with yourself and gone, I'm going to give away the entire show for free because mm. actually being noticed is more important than making £200 overall <laughs> or whatever, you know, whatever. The well, the, the other side of that was I... I, I only know about stand-up really because of YouTube. And the first stand-up I ever saw was on YouTube. And I learned stand-up from YouTube. And it was all for free. And so I felt a bit cheeky then charging people that to watch my own thing. a really interesting millennial perspective and makes me feel very old. But yeah, <laughs> it, it's, why not? That's... Uh, that said, I'm I, I'm going to start charging now. But yeah. like, I, I, I put this two hours and there's more than two hours up there for free. It's the right time to charge. Yeah. It occurred to me... Well, I, I'll come on to that in a second. Um... I thought you're very shrewd and you've thought, hang on, I'm onto something here. Have I got news for you? It's just come out a bit more. That will certainly lead to more telly. Now you're in a different bracket. And I wondered if like, oh, this is a good time to do this podcast capitalizing on the the, the oh, yeah. movement of Wang. Is there any truth? You're <laughs> smiling. <laughs> you're smiling, which suggests, is there any truth in that? If because you're, you're, you're not, some comedians are blundering through comedy going, oh, this is kind of fun. Right, and I think you strike me as someone who is a little bit more nuanced in their approach. I think people assume that because of my spectacles <laughs> and, and because I have um, a serious face, um, but and I, I'm, because you were president of Footlights, yeah, these aren't accidental. Right, like, yeah, maybe one day I'll try a bit of comedy. Well, that was there was a lot of calculation that. Um, uh, we can talk about that later, but with. Um, with asking to be on this. Well, I've, I've, I think it wasn't the timing in the sense that I wanted to capitalize on some momentum. It was timing in the sense that I felt maybe I did have something I could talk about or a few things I could talk about. So let's talk about your birth as a comic within 
let's just look through the lens of YouTube for the moment. I think that's an interesting place to start because you, well, we'll do university maybe later on, but you won the Chortle Student Competition. Yeah. Student Comedian of the Year Award. And that, all of the heats, I think, are put on YouTube. Yeah. As And the final certainly is, and your winning thing certainly is. Yeah. So you have existed as a stand-up on YouTube as a public property from the word go. Mm, I suppose so, yeah. Now, when I started doing comedy, there was definitely a sense of like, oh, you, there's this thing on the internet, there's, there's this YouTube, and you should probably not put stuff up on there until you're ready, until you want yeah. it to be seen. As I understand, the Mr. Chortle doesn't like to take anything down ever. Kind of no, refuses. they tell you once this is up, it's up. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a certain amount of like, hey, let's make all these mistakes very public. Like you, <laughs> you, you didn't. Co- yeah, I, I, it sounds like you didn't make that many mistakes. It's a great set, you know. It's very, it's kind of studenty. I think we could agree. Yes. Oh, yeah. But um, how did you feel going into that process, thinking, oh, this is the, the my opening move, and it is going to be available online forever? Or did that just feel natural? To you? Well, yeah. You know, there are those terms: um, tech natives and tech immigrants. Yes. And so I think I I was just young enough that I'm pretty much a, a tech native in terms of free videos online, and so and almost everything being documented by video and available somewhere online. So it, to me, it didn't feel um, strange or intimidating. If anything, you you wanted to get a video of yourself up there with, under a legitimate banner like Chortle. And so a lot of the times it was, it was comics, uh, students going, yeah, I'd love to have a little clip of me up on Trottle. And also when you're just starting out, you, 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 don't, you don't have those checks and balances of going, is this set good enough to be, you just, you just think, I'm a stand-up comedian, everyone should see me, I'm living life, I'm telling jokes, enough people are laughing, why not? I think I, I'd probably be a little more shrewd, as they say, about what goes up now, um, but at the time... What what the Chortle Student Comedian Award had to offer more than outweighed any any potential dangers of a bad set going out. Okay. And also, you had not, we had nothing to lose. We don't. We only just started, you know. And who's we in that context? Oh, just the it? student student comedians at that age. Sure. Who who else was in your your, your awards? Who else was in your final? Anyone that went in on to my final? Uh, Matt Reese was the runner up. Okay. He's brilliant. So he's fun, fantastic. Right? Um, Emerald Paston is my friend who we did competitions together. She's now working as producer, so she's she's still working in comedy, but as producer. Um, who um, I remember Joe Lysett did the closing set because he'd won the year before. I see. Yes, I was funny looking at that. You can see a very young-looking Joe Lysett. Yeah. Um, both of us much chubbier <laughs> with both <laughs> Phil and Joe in the chubby days. So you, how did you bring yourself to the beginnings of your stand-up career? Because you're someone who is not only all over the internet and all over the world. We, you did those Japanese gigs. We'll mm. talk about them. Yes, That's, please. We're in a very small subset of, uh, yeah. of the British comedy circuit. How a exciting su- for us. Yeah, <laughs> a subset I had to make, force myself not to be selfish about. Was, yeah, oh yeah, you're going to yeah. have to tell other people they exist. Yeah, no, yeah. you know when you find that little niche... Yes. But you feel, I can't, I can't just keep this to myself. And the gigs in Japan are going, hey, please tell everyone. And you're like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and then you eventually have it. Yeah. Um, so you're globetrotting, um, online, a digital native, uh, a tech native, all those kind of things. How did you... Let's do a little bit on growing up in Malaysia and going to school. And mm. you spoke Chinese at school, at home. Yeah, so um, not so much at home, but I went to Chinese school until the age of 10. And so you taught, in Malaysia, you taught, at least a Chinese school, you taught Chinese, Ayurveda, Mandarin, Malay, and English. So I spoke those three languages. 
And do um, you still, or was that has that dropped off? My Malay is still pretty good. My Mandarin has really dropped off. I need to pick it back up, especially because they're going to rule us. I think <laughs> uh, I need to. I need to be ready um, for when the uncles come. Uh, so yeah, I grew up learning those three languages, and then I changed to more English-speaking curriculum in um, when I was ten years old, and I went to um, boarding school in Brunei to do my GCSEs because we decided that, you know we want to go to university in the UK. Mum's from here. Um, and so I went boarding school in Brunei, do my GCSEs, and then 16, moved over to Bath and did my A-levels. That is a a pretty elite kind of an it-sounding education. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I've not... I've come, I come from a pretty privileged background. I've not really... I've never really worked a day in my life. Comedy is the only job I've ever really had. I mean, I've, I tutored for a bit. I had work experience as an engineer for a bit. But uh, was I've, your degree in engineering? Yeah. Okay. So I did four years, um, in Cambridge doing engineering. Uh, but one of the main, and this is where I guess the savviness comes in. One of the main reasons I wanted to go to Cambridge was because of footlights, and engineering was a degree I thought was interesting enough, but I could, I had a good chance getting in with. I have, I, you know, I've just realised I've always assumed that everyone who does footlights is at Cambridge studying something performative, but there aren't really other. There's not really performative courses. At Cambridge? No, not really. A, mo- a lot of them did sort of English or um, maybe theology or philosophy. <laughs> and we're, we're making gestures as if to say, I mean, come on, guys, it's not engineering, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I'm performative doing, in the sense of it's easy. I'm, I'm doing a throwing away motion with my hand <laughs> as if to throw their degrees in the garbage. Um, the, um, the, the, the engineers tended to work behind the stage. You know, the techs tended to be a lot of engineers. Um, I was, I think, the only engineer sort of performing regularly. And doing full lights. The other famous one is Rowan Atkinson, who was an engineer. Oh, when, really? When he okay. was at Oxford and Newcastle. Okay. And did you have my my oafish preconception of uh, Chinese and maybe Malaysian education is that your fellow students will have had a dragon mother pushing mm. them really hard to succeed. Yeah. Oh yeah. You, did you? How was your mum or how was your parents in terms of pushing you? Um, they ex. Expected good results from me, but I, I I did that to myself as well. I've, I've, I've always been very studious and serious. Um, my parents didn't hit me, which was rare in Malaysia. My I, I I talked to my friends at school in Malaysia, and they'd say, "So, how many times do you get hit if you if you get seventy percent?" And I said, "My parents don't hit me," and they just go, "What?" Uh, they couldn't believe that my parents didn't hit me. Um, I got hit. Um, I got hit at school. You got caned at school. I remember my Malay teacher, her, her rattan, which is her cane, was quite thin. So the pain was um, sharp, but pretty quick, and it was over pretty quick. And so my Malay homework I could slack on because I knew the pain wasn't that bad. No! Yeah, yeah. But like my Chinese teacher had a really thick cane, so I always did that on time. Um, so th- what were caneable offenses? Everything. Anything. Anything is, is a... There's a martial law in those classrooms. Not bring, not doing homework, um, talking too loudly, uh, anything, anything they want. I mean, I, I, I was in a music class, a lesson, music lesson once at, at school, Chinese school, and I just started singing on my own. It's got musical kids. So I just started singing, and suddenly I, I get shouted at by the teacher, and she brings me to the front because I wasn't meant to be singing, and she strikes me with this really thick cane across my uh, the inside of my thumb on my palm. Um, really deep pain and bruised all up my thumb. 
Um, and that was when my parents took me out of uh, the local schools. Because they had known that that was happening. They knew it was and, happening, and- but I saw the last straw. And, and my mother was always against it. My father is part of the most liberal um, generation of his family, but still he thought, you know, this is, this is just this how, is how it you goes. Treat yeah. Well, not necessarily this is how you treat children, but this is part of the education experience here. And it was just a bit more normalized to him. But I mean, he wasn't, he still wasn't completely happy with it. Um, and so that, that, that caning for singing in music class was the last straw. And they took me out and went to a, a, a Christian school. And what is the atmosphere in school among the students? What, how do they view the, does it seem like justice? Does it feel like justice? Are people outraged when they get caned or do they go, oh, well, no, yeah, my bad. You just hand in my homework on time. Guess I'm getting caned. No, it's well. Your, your children. It's terrifying. You walk up and you're crying. You're all you're all weeping, sobbing. As you, it's, it's it's the waiting for it. That's the worst torture. The pain itself isn't that bad. The physical pain, but it's the waiting for for the caning when you're lining up and you just put your hand out to get caned. That that's that's the most torturous bit. I don't want to dwell on this, but no, I, I, I've never spoken to anyone else about this. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, like, I, I went to a very, uh, I remember it as a very strict school. Absolutely not by Malaysian standards, clearly. Mm. But um, there, I mean, this, were, there were sort of psychological tortures. You know, write an essay, write a 10-page essay about the inside of a ping-pong ball. Just, you know what I mean? Mm. Just like, we're going to try and you know, stare at this dot on the wall. The people were came, but I think... I was, that was before my generation. I think there were probably, when I was a, a lower rat, I think there would be, there would have been uh, people who'd been there for 10 years who probably just were on the tail end of right, yeah, yeah. Been beaten. Because that, we'd, we'd have called it being beaten. Beaten. As, yeah. Uh, when, when, did that would have tailed, when would that have tailed off here? I don't know, well, I did, guess. Did, did it suddenly become illegal in... Yeah, I don't remember a particular year. I don't. Th- it wasn't enough of a threat to me that I went. That I went scrabbling for an encyclopedia, and but I'm sure there was a point where it became illegal, and then there were. Then I'm sure there were points where it became, like it was a bit illegal, mm-hmm. and then it was seriously illegal, and, and so forth. But I, I rem- like I certainly feel that my journey within comedy, within life, is partially a response to perceived injustices of my schooling. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, yes. I, I think a lot of comics were either bullied or, or felt bullied at the time. Mm. And maybe some of us were bullies, you know, it's a, it's a big melting pot of, you know, it's a jungle. Yeah. But um, I'm just wondering, do you feel, not even necessarily within comedy, but do you feel that you have an internal discipline? Was it beneficial to you in any way that you can perceive? Maybe in some perverse way. Well, well you wh- work hard, right? You're a successful yeah. guy. Yeah, but I think, I, I don't I think it would have worked out anyway. Um, but it, it did instill me a, a deep fear of authority that I still have. I'm still very, very afraid of authority. And and, how does that manifest? Um, just if I'm, I'm, I'm very quick to count out to anyone who decides they're the authority in a room, you know, or government, or just any, any anyone I perceive to be um, the man. I have to make a conscious effort not to just get on my knees and grovel because I, I do I do have this deep fear of authority because of the being beaten 
So this is Phil. You can find his stuff almost anywhere, I'm sure. Uh, check out his website. Check out his internet presence. I don't have to do the stuff for you. You've all got access to search engines. Uh, find out more about Phil Wang. We will find out more about him shortly. Um, you can see, if you enjoyed last week's episode with Rachel Paris, remember you can see her in Best Laid Plans at the Soho Theatre from the 6th to the 8th of March. That's her current stand-up tour show. Uh, and I will tell you more about my current stand-up tour show later on in the episode. Um, by now, I will have opened at Wembley Arena to 12,500 people for Mr. Jack Whitehall, who I'm supporting on tour at the moment and all this week in a variety of arenae. I think that's correct, arenae if my Latin serves. Um, and uh, my plan was, in the mode of uh, Russell Howard's, uh, when I interviewed Russell Howard for this podcast, something that always sticks in, in my mind, our minds, is the way he talked about coming off stage after doing a gig at Wembley and going, oh, oh, was that all right? Was that all right? Oh. Now, obviously, the pressure on me as a support act is high, but not as high as being the main guy. I appreciate that. However, I thought it would be an interesting insight to record a little Facebook Live video as soon as I walk off stage. So, now that will already have happened but if you're a member of the Facebook group you can go and find it there um, I think that should be uh, that's a fun little thing just for just for Facebook groupies so um, that'll be there if it isn't there for some reason then possibly something went I'm not going to say badly wrong I don't mean with the gig I'm sure the gig went absolutely fine um, but uh, maybe something else has uh, happened technically speaking but if not there should at least be at the very least there should be a video of me going oh god my career's over i don't think that's likely i can't wait i'm so excited about doing it what a, what a nuts week i've got coming up and um, remember the 20th of february is the next comedians comedian podcast live at soho theater with uh, mr paul chowdhury excellent comedian divisive presence in some ways very very funny guy socially as well i'm expecting to be put through my paces as an interviewer because uh, paul is very much someone who likes to wrong foot you I think even just hanging out with him at gigs and chatting to him he loves just uh, <laughs> something actually just to give you a, a, a flavour of his sense of humour I texted him to confirm him for the show or to ask if he fancied doing the Soho show sometime after New Year and uh, and he went and to you too like in that kind of like in his answering message like in calling me out for not having bid him a happy new year it made me laugh but it really put me on the back foot as well so I think it should be a really fun chewy sort of an interview and a very fun one to be in the room for live the code Vera capitals all capital letters V-E-R-A at SohoTheatre.com will get you a small pod face discount merch news coming up very soon thank you to everyone that took place in the Facebook group on a little poll I did for uh, which slogan suited the thing we've come to a decision now and uh I will show you that in due course, but I'm sure it's the right decision, and everyone I've told about it so far has really laughed. So, donations. Listen, I've not been hitting this so hard. I don't feel like I have. Um, I, I uh, Donations have really tailed off, guys. <laughs> That's fine. I am enormously indebted to anyone who has set up a recurring donation, and if you're someone who appreciates this show and wants to support it financially, please do so at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate. Maybe it's me. Maybe I need to find a different way of saying it. Maybe it's that everyone who listens who planned to donate already has. Maybe that's it. But maybe you're listening to this and thinking, I always meant to get round to donating to support ComCom. Why don't I chuck something at him now? Then that is very much an option that is available to you. The podcast remains 
largely advert free I think in, in the entire history of the podcast there have been four episodes with ads and at least two of them were laser guided towards what I thought you guys would enjoy um, I'm, I'd like to keep it that way I would like to keep it that way I was approached by someone recently to advertise some sort of it wasn't quite gambling but it was like an online money related thing and I really didn't want to do it so I sort of nipped it in the bud and said nope we don't do that and I did that because I have integrity not because I want you to pay me instead but it would be nice if you wanted to reward that kind of integrity it's by no means a guarantee if the right sponsor comes along who I think adds value to your lives and my own then uh, then I would not rule it out but in the meantime you've got to listen to me blether on asking you for money so who knows Let, basically if you cough up and donate to the show to support it and to help it keep going to help me keep gadding around the world flying to exciting places and recording exciting conversations that stimulate and invigorate you then it is up to you to support it and uh, and if you can't do that then uh, i love you anyway exactly as much and i would simply like you to share the show with your friends hoik their phones out of their pockets and um and basically make them use podcasts and subscribe to this show or indeed leave me a five-star review especially if you live outside the uk and you're able to leave uh, a review on a non-uk itunes i think that's very helpful that's all the stuff uh i will of course be back for some post ambular chat uh, after the end of this recording but let's get back to the wondrous and very entertaining to spend time with phil wang this podcast is brought to you by eHarmony. The dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So does the idea of a career in comedy, which seems like the opposite of authority, was the kind of Cambridge Footlights idea, was that a conduit into it? Like, oh, Cambridge is an authority, and they're okay with the idea that some of their students... <laughs> I thought... I suppose so. They weren't. They weren't all that okay. Cause, I mean, it's um, you always have to do battle with your director of studies who wants you to do engineering, and that's it. And so I had friends who had to change their names on a play brochures so that the tutors wouldn't find out they were doing plays because their studies were going so badly, you know. Um, so as as an institution, Cambridge itself doesn't really encourage you either way okay it just the for life just uh, is a society that's open and free to you there to use if you can because i i think one of the something that you say yourself actually in your promotional material you describe yourself in a really interesting kind of uh is dichotomous a word who knows yeah. let's let's rein it back in you in a in deliberately contradictory terms like being a suave dork yeah or a feminist creep yeah and i think there is <laughs> there's almost like um i wonder if there is something in you which is kind of 
a quite an interesting tension between the your desire to please authority and the fact that you're doing something which is quite outre. Yeah, exactly. I, I find duality really interesting, and especially duality within a person's character. You know that we're all sort of simultaneously good and bad people. I find that the most interesting to talk about, and and how everything you do in your life is sort of a battle between two polar opposite forces within yourself. You know, so my my fear of authority, um, and the re- its resulting shyness is what drove me to challenge myself to do stand up to get over that, and to establish myself as a voice. You know, um. And being a feminist creep, I, I I I believe in the feminist ideals of equality, but I'm also a red-blooded man. And how 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 does that manifest itself? You know, and I'm a suave dork. I <laughs> I I'm I'm good at maths, but again, I'm a red-blooded man. So you know, where does that come in? So yeah, it's I I find conflict interesting and conflict within oneself very interesting. And I I, I like I like comedians who confess to being bad people essentially well i i agree i'm interested in that as well but which ones for you which ones are the kind of the, the beacons of that um patrice o'neill i guess yes, i love yes. his, i love his stuff it's just and he is so skillful that he can say the most appalling things you ever heard but you're still on his side and you still and he's so eloquent about it that you still want to hear what he has to say about these things i always think whenever i listen to patrice his stuff is like you can hear him wrestling do you know what mm, I mean? It's like he's going, mm. he's saying, look, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to do this, but I am saying this. It's like you can feel a man kind of wrestling. I don't, I don't even think he's that apologetic. I think <laughs> yeah, he, right. L- Maybe he's wrestling with the conscience of his audience rather than yeah. himself. Louis CK is a bit more apologetic about like the things he says, like, I think this, but maybe also that. And I find that invigorating to, to hear that honesty. You know, I think comedy is often too, is, too often cited as like speak truth to power i think it's more interesting just speak honestly to yourself and just to each other you know i don't i don't like nice comedy i really one one of my uh, the the descriptive word of a comedy show that i hate the most is joyful i hate i hate i hate comedy shows that describe as joyful i don't know i feel like that should be assumed that you will you will gain some some sort of positive reaction to it what, so you mean if you see something described as joyful by the performer, you would assume that what that it's going to be joyful anyway? So why bother saying so? Or that it's yeah. like they're hiding? It's like it's like admitting it's not funny enough to go. Hey, well, there's there's the joy. There's the basic joy. I don't. I don't. Maybe I'm just a grumpy bastard. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, th- I think I think I'm just a bit of a grump, and I find I find giddiness quite irritating. <laughs> um... I, I don't understand comedians who seem interested in coming across as good people. I don't get that. And I don't understand comedy that has a sort of morally positive angle. I don't see what the point is. I, I, I guess a lot of the fear I was trying to, I was trying to overcome when doing stand-up is being able to be honest with myself about the ugliness in myself. And I, I don't understand people who go up and say, isn't it wonderful when, yeah, yeah, I guess it is, but what's, what's your point? You know, I, I want to hear, this is really ugly, 
but isn't that interesting about it's it? It's got to be but in the middle of the sentence. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. And do you think your comedy, is that, is that like an ideal for you? Or do you think that is something to which your comedy conforms? What do you, what do you well, mean? like I think, um, I don't, th- well, I don't mean I think, what I mean is like, if we watch one of your routines, if someone watches a Phil Wang clip, your Apollo clip or what have you, do you think all of that material would fit that? Or do you think there are moments when you do jokes to be liked? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we all have our ideals and we try and achieve them. But you, you always fall a bit foul, you know. You always, and, and when you're falling foul, what is that? Is that a desire to be liked? Is that, you know, when I, you don't achieve your ideals as a comic, what other factors are at play? Um, if I apologize, I feel I've, I've betrayed myself a bit. I don't think comedians should apologize. I, th- I, I, I sometimes think even if you know you're wrong, I don't think you should apologize. <laughs> That's interesting. I just don't. It's not your place to apologize as a comedian. It's not your place to be um, a moral arbiter. It's just, I think it's much more interesting just to be a reflection, just to be uh, an honest, uncut reflection of the truth, no matter how... Not the truth, but... How your, you see your the world. Truth, your yeah, own truth. yeah, how you see the world, no matter how ugly that might be to some people. And and how are you able, as a person who exists within numerous contexts, how are you able to accurately represent a truth? What, what, which context are you talking well, about? Well, like, for example, like you say, you're a privileged background, or yeah. you're a man, you have male privilege, say, yeah. for example, or simply that you, I don't know, like you're... I don't know any kind of... I, I don't mean this to be a question about privilege, but I mean... Um, I'm happy to talk about that. You, no, sure. But um, I, I, we'll, we'll get to that. I just... What I'm asking is if your job as a comic, as you perceive it, is to simply say your truth, are there things you need to take into account about the social structures which are, are why you see a particular truth? Like, if you do some material about watching porn, for example, which I'm not mm. quoting any of your material, but picking a random topic. So if you do material about watching porn and you're trying to talk about your truth about porn, mm. do you need to recognize that that exists within a context of, like, maybe porn isn't such a great thing, but we all, lots of people watch it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think you can only be completely honest about your own experience with something and your own thoughts about something. Um, and, like... uh uh, are you talking about like the the impact your your words might have if you're completely honest about them? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I've told jokes I regret, and people have said things about them, and and I've not done them again, but only because I think they're not good, and I think that they were right in that case. Other times, people have complained about jokes, and I disagree with them, and I just keep going with it, or I try and improve it so that fewer and fewer people have le- a legitimate reason to complain. Okay. Can yeah. you give us an example? Um, mm, yes. Yes. I, I, had, I had a joke one show about um, bisexual people, and I can't remember exactly what the joke was now. It, it boiled down to, oh, they, they can't choose, can they? But it's, I, I like to think it was a more sophisticated version sure. of that uh, logic. But I had... I had some um, gay and bisexual people complain, and others go, "That was bang on," and and so I just kept doing it. But I eventually did lose faith in the bit anyway, and just dropped it. 
And I, I sometimes feel maybe I should have kept going with that and tried to, in, instead of giving up on it, just try and improve it to the point where no one could legitimately complain that it, it was unfair or unfunny. You know, I think now I, I'd stick. I, now I would have stuck with it and tried to figure it out. And and when you say figure it out, you would have what made it complaint proof or made it morally correct? Which one of those would complaint you proof? Okay. Like like in the in the school of um, Patrice O'Neill. Um, so funny and well observed that even if it is a heinous thing to say, you can't really argue with it. That's interesting. Yes, it's that. That's almost the um, the Jim Jeffries. I don't mean it as a defence, but a Jim Jeffries line of argument, which is that once they've laughed, they've already laughed. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's a cowardice to complaining about something you enjoyed in the moment and then regretted enjoying later on. Yes, you have to take responsibility for the fact that, ah, I feel terrible because that made me laugh. Mm. But I feel terrible. I can't blame anyone else for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and if you laughed in the first instance, maybe think about why why you did and what what you recognize in the material that that, that engaged with you. My my favorite thing about stand-up is feeling like you're in a little room and everyone's keeping the same secret. You know, that's closed off from the world and everything that is said here is okay. No matter, even if it's horrible, you can laugh at it and you leave the world and the world's still where it was when you left it. But you've had this free experience, this this experience of exploring hypotheses, you know? What if I actually thought this horrible thing? What if this person said this horrible thing or, or or did this horrible thing? And you get to explore those hypotheses and you don't really get to do that in any other um in any other type of art. Well not not, not that intensely and not that personally as in stand up. And I I get I get a bit annoyed when people try and shut comedians up um in this country. Um and then the comedians cry uh, free speech and the other people um, say, um, no, you have responsibility for your say. And because I come from a country where you, can't, you, are, you don't have free speech, you know, and you can get in serious trouble for what you say in a, in a, in a performance context. And I think people sometimes in the West take for granted that luxury of being able to just sound ideas out. You know, the value, it is a really valuable thing to be able to say, right, this next hour is sacred. I don't even need to say that it's sacred because this is a comedy club. Yeah. And the, that maybe exists a bit less now. I think so. I, there, there's so many ways to hold someone to account now from anyone, even if you didn't even watch the thing you're complaining about. Um, and, and, and people get such a dopamine rush from jumping on to some moral crusade even if they 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 don't even care enough about it to get off the seat or get off the computer but if they can they can register some social interest by retweeting something or going this is awful they probably don't even really think it but it's just that nice little dopamine hit of i'm i matter my opinions matter i'm a good person and they've really done anything they haven't gone out there and done a response bit of stand-up themselves or even made something that con- that is a response to the point that the comedian made. Do you think everybody deserves the right to have a sacred space within which to test out some hypotheses? And do you think yeah, that... Yeah, new nights. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Do you think that can be abused? It can, it can be abused, but I think the context of the space should be inherently understood in... Like in stand-up, it is 
It's, it's, I mean, it's called stand-up comedy. I think there should be an understanding that this performance is rhetorical. And do you think that that understanding is held by not just all audiences, but all comics? I'm thinking if right. a comedian says something, for example, that is misogynist. Yeah, and, and you a feel like of, they pr- It's a joke, guys, and you as an audience member or a comic sitting at the back are thinking, I don't know if that's a joke. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's where it gets really tricky, doesn't it? But I, I, th- I think an effort should be made to give a comedian the benefit of the doubt. I think if, if, if they have a history of consistently betraying an audience's trust, but, and, and by appearing to actually believe in these things that they're saying, then I think that's a separate case. But what I dislike is almost wanting to take offense with something. You know, sitting on the front row before the show's even started and crossing your arms and going... And just jumping on the first thing anyone says. Do you think that the... Like, when I think of someone sitting in the front row crossing their arms, I suppose I think of maybe a right-wing person who sat crossing their arms at a gig in the Midlands who's expecting to be offended by my smug liberal comedy. I think, actually, as much of an issue today is a very left-wing person sitting in the front row waiting to be offended by something. Yeah, yeah. And have you, you started, when did you do the Chortle thing? 2010. 2010. So over the seven now years of your stand-up career, and we'll talk about the other, and sort of Daphne and what have you as well, um, do you, do you recognize a change within that time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember doing, I'm going to sound like Jerry Seinfeld here, but I remember, <laughs> I remember doing gigs in, Cambridge and pretty much anything went and everyone was just so excited that you could say fuck on stage you know, <laughs> we're just so, yeah we we're so amazed and then like five years on I'm performing as a, an adult man to current students and there, there's just this tension this automatic tension anything anytime anything vaguely illiberal is said but a lot of the time, the, the students, as fresh as week, they, they don't even know anyone. They don't know what they're allowed to laugh at. But I, th- I, I think there is more pressure now on young people than ever to have a concrete philosophy about the world and to be completely right about everything in the world at like 18, 19 years old. And that's which is impossible. That's absurd. And I think the internet has um, accelerated that. And unfortunately, a swing to the far right has accelerated that as a response. You know? You think the... The, the, the accelerate... This, um, this new global swing to the far right, politically, is only going to exacerbate the problem of offence-taking on the left. Because I think... Which the, is then presumably going to further exacerbate yeah, exactly, the swing yeah. to the right. yeah. Yeah, so everyone's just pushing each other to the fringes. What is the Phil Wang five-point plan for saving the world? From our perspective, have you got any? I mean, I think got- I think I'd be a real hypocrite to, to then suggest that I have a plan to fix the world. <laughs> but uh, I'm interested in in th- where do you think it will go? Is there? Are we just going to become more and more polarized until there is no more free speech? Until there's no more comedy? Um, it's an impossible question. I just wonder where your instinct suggests. My in in so engineering, I learned uh, studied control systems, which is about changing um, a state, like in your heater. So changing from 
um, 19 degrees up to 23 degrees. And it's about making that change of state as smooth as possible. But you pretty much always will have an overshoot above 23 degrees, which will then come back down to maybe 22 degrees and then back up to 23.5 degrees and then back down to 24. And so everything has that overshoot. Every time there's a big change in society, there is an overshoot that tries to counteract what's just happened. And so I think we will eventually hit a steady state somewhere in the middle. I think the world will always tend to the middle, but we're currently in a particularly polarized point in that graph, you know? So I, I, I think I'm, I'm hopeful. I might not sound it, but I am an optimist. And I, I think we will hit them. I, will, I think we'll tend towards a middle ground. So going back to Cambridge, you're, you arrived at Cambridge with your sights set on one day becoming president of Footlights? It was like a dream in the back of my head because my, my mother told me about it when I was a kid. And I was watching these tapes of all these British comedians and John Cleese and all that. And um, I thought it seemed it seemed out of my grasp because I was a kid in Malaysia. Like, how am I going to? But eventually I, I got to Cambridge and I auditioned for the Footlights. And I got onto what's called the committee in my second year. You have to apply and you have to show dedication and um, enough quality in your work. And I got on the committee as webmaster. Yeah, junior webmaster. <laughs> I oversaw a, a disastrous <laughs> it was a disastrous new website we waste a lot of money on. But that's behind me now. Um, but then I, I, kept, I became uh, full-life president mainly because I had a four-year degree. And so I just had more experience than everyone because I was there for an extra year. And then so I, I, be, I became president. Nice angle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, Very, that's, <laughs> that's the tips everyone comes to ComCom Pod for. <laughs> yeah, take a four-year course at Cambridge, guys. That's all you need. And what did it mean to you? Well, we know what it meant to you a little bit to become the president. What does that actually... Does, like, at what point did you think, this is going to be my career? Working in comedy is going to be my career. When I won total. And, but that, that's before I became president. I, okay, so which year of your degree did you win Chortle? Um End of second year. Okay. And then th- in end of third year, I became uh, full-life president. Okay. Um, but it was after I won Chortle that I decided this, this is going to be my job now. And it overtook my engineering work in the time I spent to it. And what happened with your degree? It went fine. I got a, I, I got a two one overall. Well, when I when I started, I, I I was still very much in the mindset of I must be the best engineer, and I worked really really hard, and I just missed the first. I got a two one, and that kind of your teachers in Malaysia listening to this going, <laughs> if I'd have been there with my rattan, <laughs> just whacking their canes on the ground. <laughs> um, but that that sort of set me free to go. Okay, well I can just do this all right. And concentrating on comedy, so I just had I got I got a two one overall, which is fine. It's good enough. My parents are happy enough. Um, even my dad is happy enough. But yeah, so it was, it was at the end of second year that I decided that I'm going to do comedy professionally. And talk to me about. Let's just briefly uh, take a, a tangential path into Daphne. Mm-hmm. Um, are the other members of Daphne, were they also Cambridge? Were they also Footlights? Yes, so they were in the year below me, but in the committee over which I was president, because I was that extra year above, and they were the year below me. And um, we went on a Footlights tour show, which goes to Edinburgh and does all Edinburgh. And we were lucky enough to go and perform in the East Coast of America as well. And, um, and, And we got to know each other there. 
but then we we got back we graduated they went off and did their own acting thing i was doing my own stand-up thing and then um, one day they went uh phil we're, we're going to try and do a, a three-man sketch thing um because they tried all different types of combinations with other cambridge uh, with other footlights old next footlights that didn't really work out um and then so they dropped me a line and said do you, do you want to try a, a three thing and i went yeah sure give it a go um because i was just a bit sick of being on my own all the time <laughs> doing comedy on my own and so we gave it a go and, and it worked out and um, we're still going now and what do you like because no, no, neither of those guys do stand up as no. well so what is what's the sort of the difference what's the dynamic of that group does the fact that you're a stand up give you do you find yourself going guys this is going to work because I've got a lot more road miles than you um in some ways in the sort of the live performing on stage aspect of performing that is very much the case and if something happens in the room it usually falls to me to deal with it just because i'm more used to things happening in um in stand-up so there's kind of a tacit agreement that i'll I'll jump on something uh but they're both very good improvisers um and and better actors than me and so they kind of take care of that aspect i just do the crowd work (laughs) (laughs) Um, I saw your show in preview in Bristol. Oh, yeah. I saw your most recent one. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. I remember hearing you warm up beforehand, singing three-part harmonies on a sea shanty, some sort of Cornish, Cornish pirate <laughs> anthem or something like this. And I think I may even have said to you at the time, that's a naked grab for the elusive fifth star. Like, that seemed to me, <laughs> that seemed to, me to be, like, you seemed to me to be, as a, as a trio, from, I've only seen that one show and only in preview, but I thought it was fantastic. Oh, thanks. But it, it seemed to me to have, like, you've gone, you know that phrase, the triple threat. I think they use it in yeah. musical theatre. Someone can sing, dance, and act in a triple threat. You seem to me to be throwing about 20 threats at it in terms of, this is going to be a steamroller. Right, yeah. Did you, see what, did you see what I mean? Like, you, it wasn't just, hey, let's do some sketches. You seemed again to be very shrewd in the creation of that show. Tell me if I'm if I'm barking at the wrong. There thing. was shrewdness there. Jason's a, um, a, a very shrewd, even shrewder than I. Like we at the first year, um, at the end of which we were nominated for best newcomer, was a really shrewdly done year because we we all. I don't know how much of it was conscious from us, but all the things happened at just the right time. You know, we won London Sketch Fest um, during a time when there was an awareness of us building because we were doing these regular shows that we put on with guests. Um, And then we started getting on these um, lists, you know, the 10 things to see at Edinburgh. And that just kind of snowballed. Um, And we just got... Did you apply to be on those lists? Were you sending press releases? Were you kind of steering your marketing i don't mean applying but do you, do you see what i mean do you, were you kind we, of we've always been good at pushing our usps and which is our multiracialness and our um our weirdness and and we i think we know what makes us unique and we really we don't shut up about it um and we we had you know we had um photos that were quite striking and made us look like completely a different thing you know black guy white guy chinese guy together on this big yellow you know it it it, it all stood out and we knew we were making it stand out so i get there was a shrewdness there in that in that first and in terms of the production of that show obviously i didn't see that show but were there things in it that you were thinking 
it'd be good to show this skill. Yes, I, we, there, there's a song at the end of that. Okay, so it was the, it was the first show that began the singing thing. That, and that's very much George. That's very much George's influence. He's um, he just sings all the time. We tell him to shut up all the time. He will not stop singing. But a lot of, a lot of the joke songs that end up in the show, uh, songs George just makes up on the spot and makes us laugh, and we just just write down and say, just sing that on stage. What happens? Um, like the end of the first show was a song called Bromley by Bo, which is a fake. Um, sentimental Cockney post World War One song <laughs> that George just made up to annoy a friend of his, and then we decided to harmonise and 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 perform, and it, it just worked. It, it just it just adds a little something else for people to enjoy. I think I think there's a bit of a. It's kind of like how a comedian brings out a guitar; they kind of guarantee an applause. There's a bit of that as well, and and the three of us are also failed singers, basically me, Jason, and George. We all wanted to be singers, and it's the it's the one talent we actually all share is that we all like singing. And we're quite good at singing, um, and again, it's something that sets us apart to be a three a differently coloured three headed singing animal. You know? <laughs> so when you got nominated, yeah dream come true is that like great that's part of the plan did you want to win was it important to you to win um not personally no i personally i think that's a silly thing to hope for i think Stuart lee once had um uh an analogy of it's like trying to control the weather you know trying to worrying about the weather it's there's so many factors that go into an award like that is is not worth worrying about with something like, but if th- someone says it's looking pretty sunny this weekend for your for your big party, <laughs> no, sure, you, you can, can sit around it. hoping it's going to be sunny. <laughs> no, yeah, you can, yeah, you can. I try and control myself though with with hopes. I I, I don't. I'm, I never get excited about something until it's literally happening. Um, and and so I, I was relatively philosophical about it. Um, I was hoping for the uh, the the nomination though, and especially I think that's unique to newcomers as well because it's a much smaller pool of. Um, Yes, it feels people. a bit more, a little, yeah, a little bit more possible, right? A little more attainable, and also, as I was saying, we were getting all those press beats in the run-up that I recognised as this tends to be what uh, new, newcomer nominated shows get in the run-up to to the Edinburgh. Is there a, a game plan for Daphne? Is you, are you pitching TV shows? Yeah, and- so we got we've got um, we did a Radio Four series last year, mm-hmm. and we've had that recommissioned for this year. So we're doing it the second series in June. Uh, we want to do a TV show. Yeah, we want to we want to adapt what we've done for radio and on stage to a, a TV show. And what would be have you have you got one in your back pockets? Are you like pitching? We have an idea with 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 sketch though. It's it's a question of format really, you know, and just how it's going to be delivered. What are you cutting to? Are you cutting from a live space to a um, a pre shot sketch? Or you know, th- those are the questions that you have to address in that kind. Those of seem like questions I wouldn't even think about. Tell me about those sorts of questions. So like I, I think of with sketch shows. I think taking a live sketch show and putting it on telly. For me, the big question is live audience or not. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and I think we we've settled on an idea because. We're quite vaudevillian. We we sell ourselves as quite a vaudevillian act, and so a live audience would would play naturally to that strength. But we also love uh, sketch shows like Armstrong and Miller that just have these wonderful production values and look like little films. And and so it's trying to find that balance between those two, or do we want like a mighty bushy, lo-fi, silly setting, you know, where we have these sort of um, nice but 
budget sets that we go to from one sketch or one setting to another. We haven't committed entirely to one yet. Do you imagine that uh, George and Jason are hoping your stand-up career doesn't work out <laughs> quite as well as it might? Um, n- I, I couldn't speak for them. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. But uh, but I mean, we. I also get frustrated when they have their own jobs to do. It's, 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 it is. What's nice is that we do different things, so we're not really jealous of one another. If the other does well, the only frustration is, oh, you can't make that meeting now on Friday. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that, that's what get, gets annoying. Um, but with something like the radio show, I know I have to block out loads of days to do the writing. And and what's nice is that you can you can do. I can do Daphne stuff in the day, and then go and gig at night, and it, it also works out. And we're getting better balancing it. I mean, the first year we were doing that show and I was doing my solo show and that didn't work out. For, for me, for me, for my solo show, I feel. And so th- so last year I didn't do a solo show. We did our second show. And this year we're not doing an Ember show and I am doing a solo show. How much of that show is uh, ready at the minute? Let's my solo about, show. Yeah, yeah. We're talk- what are we in now? We're in mid-January yeah. 2017. Are you where you want to be with your new solo show? No, no. Well, because I had the year off, so to speak. Um, I have, I probably have in bulk the, the enough material, but it doesn't necessarily fit into um, what I want the show to be about. Uh, which is, Let me speak for all comics who don't have the material ready when I say "Cry Me a River" by <laughs> <laughs> No, but I mean, it, I mean, literally. But so, I mean, the the material I have is so disparate and often overlapping that. It, that I, I probably have to pick between one or the other. That's interesting. That's not something we've spoken about before. That's something I'm coming up against at the moment with uh, baby material. I've got, oh, that's mm. a really good baby story, and that's a really good baby observation. I can't do both. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's often the less than the sum of its parts, you know? Yes. Even the mention of a word in one set, in one bit can detract from the effectiveness of an of another bit later on. Yes, just and I'm, lead to potential critical reception down the line going, God, Wang's obsessed with kettles because he's got two kettle bits and you're like dude one one bit is just a kettle on a shelf in the background of an otherwise perfectly good story do people just reviews just say too much race that 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 is that makes me so angry that's the me thing people go i i i've never been angry at a review before but in my second show there was um a review that says he talks to it's it's fine show he talks far too much about being chinese it just goes on on and on and on about it and there's honestly maybe five minutes at the top that's directly about it i and, see what you mean okay and even then that is an awful thing to say and people think they're doing the right thing by saying he doesn't have to talk about his race so much but the, the i this is genuinely what i feel it is it is racist to proudly express a disinterest in the cultural experience of someone else you know and it doesn't make you smart or good to go oh it's pretty cheap to talk about just being Ch- chinese you know? And I, I just think, like, where else, where else are you hearing this from? Are you being inundated with what it's like being a Chinese person in the UK material? I think the, the, this knee-jerk reaction that it's cheap to talk about race annoys me very much. I, sorry, I don't know how we got onto that. No, 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 I'm fascinated. But to hear that, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that, but I think it's... It, it's would you let's try some thought experiments around that subject so if you had done a show that was 100 percent about being chinese mm. do you think they would have a point in saying well a bit too much chinese stuff absolutely or, you do yeah okay and and i mean this is hypothetical but i'm confident that i think if 
um, a um, a British comedian, a full British comedian, not to mean white, but <laughs> like who was who was born here and then grew up here, uh, unlike myself. But if someone did um, a show about you know what it means, what it truly means to be British, you know, I think there are people who go, oh, this is an interesting dissection of British life. But if I go up and do one joke about oh, my Chinese dad is probably a bit different from your British dad because of this, they go, oh, that. All right, mate. It's not in American Apollo here, you know. It's, it's not Def Jam comedy, you know. To tell us something we we can we we know about, and uh, I, I feel there is a subtle but insidious um, hypocrisy there. Yeah. Talk to me about your feelings about the word yellow. Hmm. Right. So, because my second show was called Mellow Yellow, which I which is still my favorite title. <laughs> <laughs> um. And I, I don't, I don't mind it. I don't mind it's a color's a color. You know, I, I don't mind being labeled a color. Um, and my skin does look more yellow, I think, than a lot of other people's. You know, my, a lot of my friends are quite pink. I, I come off quite yellow against them. That's fine. There's something inherently bad about a color. Um, it depends what follows it. I mean, the phrase yellow peril isn't entirely positive, but that's more of the peril bit of that sentence you know um i i got a bit of flack f- for calling from like comedian friends for calling that show mellow yellow but I, I but again i think well it's not your place to tell me what when you say flack what was the point they would make when they said they took I issue guess with it the insinuation that was that was cheap i think i think that's always i mean it was it's from a com- comedian friend who's a bit highfalutin okay um anyway so it wasn't entirely a surprise um but I think the insinuation is that I am using my race as a gimmick, which is absurd because all of what all of us do is informed by our life experience. And my race and my my upbringing is just, that's just part of my life experience. You, I, I don't simply ask the question because of the title of that show, but you have some very, very funny material about um, uh, Chinese food, or as we call it, food. Right. My, you know, that, that's kind of that sort of. I feel of really bad about that bit of material. It's, Do you? It's, it's just it's a Simpsons joke. The the, the I, I I talk about uh, we all had a Chinese good Chinese New Year. Well, we just call it New Year, yeah. and then I do food. Oh, sorry, uh, Chinese food, and I go sorry food, and then like the big laugh is I go we went uh, to uh, what a town, for Chinatown, <laughs> and then and people get a big laugh out of that. But it's it's inspired by a Simpsons joke is when they're in Brazil, and Homer Simpson is taken hostage, and and he says to his captors, I need to go to the toilet. My 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 bladder is the size of a Brazil nut, and one of the captains goes, well, "We just call them nuts." And that's it. That's basically it. That's just that joke. But I've taken it and changed oh, it. Oh, you saw that? You heard that joke first? Yeah, and I yeah, and absolutely. Well, I, it's, right. it's not okay. like I, I, but I didn't consciously go. That's a funny joke. I bet I can make it work with. But just once that, like you wrote the bit first, and then you realised you'd yeah absorbed it from the Simpsons. Yeah, I realised pretty much straight away that yeah. I absorbed it from the Simpsons. <laughs> but I, I felt that was different enough that it was fine. But yeah, I, I do feel a little pang of guilt about that bit. I think I make it my own, but I don't really do it anymore. My girlfriend um, hates that bit. She absolutely hates it. Why does she hate it? I think she just thinks the wordplay is stupid. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, With the, in your in your um, uh, Apollo set, you had a joke about wearing yellow shoes 
where you said that, oh, just so you know, I'm not barefoot, by the way. Oh, no, yeah. So um, I say, I'm wearing these shoes and they're yellow. I don't say the yellow. Um, and then I go, racist people think that I'm barefoot. Yes. Mm. I'm put in mind of um, a piece of material which I saw Rudy Liquid do on Show Me the Funny, where he said, I can see there's some black people at the back. I can see your teeth. Mm. Is there a relationship between that material and your yellow feet material yeah it's um it's about owning it and laying claim to it as as a as a chinese person um and i wear those shoes because they're the shoes bruce lee wears in <laughs> into the dragon yeah i did wonder that <laughs> I thought, I saw, oh, no shoes man <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but i this is, is really soppy but i wear those as a reminder that because east asian men are so often emasculated um, especially in like in in western in like um, uh, the West in the UK and in American uh, culture, that it's a reminder that like East Asian men can be sexy and cool and strong like Bruce Lee. That's great, man. That's so great to hear. It's, it's a bit naff, but it, it, it does help. <laughs> it is. I mean, the, the fact of you doing that and then the fact of you describing it as a bit naff is uh, there's something very beautiful about that. <laughs> I don't know quite what. Um, so are there moments when uh, comedians do racial material that is there a line at can, can a can a comedian make any joke about their own race? Can a comedian make any joke about another race? Can a non-white comedian make any joke about any other race that isn't their own? Can you I mean I know it's a huge number of questions but just while we're on the subject have you winced at racial material because it is within different parameters? Yes. Yes. I mean, there's a whole punching up thing, which I think is a decent rule of thumb, but I think it's an oversimplification all the time. Um, and so, then I, I, there's definite there's definite racial hierarchies. Even if you would rather that weren't the case, you know, there are. Um, in 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 each society has different ones. Like in Malaysia, I did some stand up in Malaysia, and everyone's race is up for grabs. Because there's the because race is out in the open, everyone talks about it. It's not a sensitive subject, really. And so, you, Chinese people say really awful things about Malay people, and Malay people say, and and it's kind of taken as a joke, and people enjoy it. Here, because there is a historical hierarchy with white at the top, and then below um, a changing league table, depending on where you, <laughs> where in time you are. Uh, <laughs> um, I th- then the, here, there is more of a a discomfort around it. I've I've jokes about black people and my like my black friends. Not even making fun of them for being black, but just just pointing out that they're 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 black makes people uncomfortable. I sure. I actually have a, a a line now where I say my friend Jason um, is black, which I only say because you imagined him white and he isn't, and that's the only reason I'm saying that. <laughs> and I guess I I I I want people to be able to talk about race. Honestly, to the extent where you can actually just say what someone's race is, you know. Um, but uh, sorry to answer the question, um, if I wince at a joke about race, it'll be because it's not a good joke. Mm-hmm. I think I like to think. I like to think that uh, nothing's off. Um, that nothing is off limits, but the joke has to be good enough. The 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 more questionable the the more sensitive the subject, the better the joke has to be. I think that's a general rule. You know, so if you're going to do a rape joke, it better be really good. 
I'm not saying you should never do a rape joke, but if you do a rape joke, it better be really, really funny. And that's interesting because I think I agree, but at the same time, I feel like if the argument against doing rape jokes is, you know, one of the arguments against that is that it normalizes rape or that a rapist could listen and mistakenly think you are normalizing rape or that it isn't as awful a thing as it is mm. or that you might upset a person in the audience who's been raped and as mm. men we probably vastly underestimate the yep. amount of sexual assault suffered by a random selection of humans in a mm. club of either gender do, the, do you have a view on those issues and is your view on that issues thrown out of the window if the joke is funny enough when I say the joke is funny enough, though, I mean so funny that even someone affected by something like rape would laugh and would see the point of it and would not feel victimized by it. I I've, I told a rape joke once when I was 20, and I, I live with that regret every day of my life. Right. Yeah, it was just a bad joke. It was just pointless and hurtful, and it, I, sh- I shouldn't have done it. And so I know if I, if I talk about a subject like that, it better be well observed and better be interesting um, and... It better come not come from a place of victim blaming or anything like that, um, and it just has to be backed up by a really unique and funny point. You know, I'm just leaving a gap in case you were gonna. I'm sometimes quite. Sometimes I like to use silence as an interview technique. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> but fine. because you ended with a direct question, you know, I felt like I was leaving you in the lurch. <laughs> right, and then. let's just. I'm going to play some tumbleweed here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the the joke just has to be good enough. And and f- I guess from the and from the right place, or if it isn't from the right place, in the way that something like Patrice O'Neill would do, it he backs it up by being so surprising and interesting and funny that you let go of it as a piece of rhetorical performance. You're kind of grimacing at that. Is that because well, you think you believe what you've said? Yeah, well, I've never spoken about it at this length, so I'm learning a lot about myself as I talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. You know. Let's talk about the your appearance on Have I Got News For You. Uh-huh. Tell me about going into that. You found out you're going to be on the show. Did you... Uh, Have I Got News For You? Yeah. Yeah. And were you excited? Were you nervous? Were you... What, were your, what was your emotional state? Um... Did you know you were in the frame for it? Was it mooted as a possibility and then you were hanging on to find out? It was mooted in the, as a possibility because um, I'd worked um, on a much more low-key project that the same producer was working on. And so I got to know her and we worked on this thing together for a bit. And so I knew I was on sort of a radar. Um, and But still, I mean, there's such a narrow chance of getting on, on the show like that. Um and I don't know how much influence other people had on it, but I, I, I did, I did, I, I felt closer to it than I had before. But still, it was, it was still an amazing thing to find out. And when, you, when I think when you hear, when I hear about something like that, when I'm told I'm on something like that, I, I'm, I'm in a state of disbelief for a bit, and I, I don't really relax or enjoy it until it's over. And I feel like I've done a good job. You know, it, I didn't. Like I didn't know, I didn't realize I was on Have I Got News for You until those panels spinned at the end of yes, our recording. Yes, okay. I noticed that uh, when David Tennant, who was hosting, when he introduced you, he did a joke about you ending your blogs with the term "wang out." Yeah, and then he basically sort of undid that joke by then doing the same joke about. He kind of underlined the subtext of that joke. Like his intro was a really kind of <laughs> joke. Did you feel that at the time or did you not notice? It was like, it was like he said, he ends his blogs with the term wang out. And I don't remember what he said, but it was something like, 
let's hope he's not referring to his penis. And you, you yeah. know, in, in a way that if a heckler had said that, you'd have been like, yeah, thanks, mate. That was the joke. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I Did mean, you feel that at the time? I, I, I think I was a, a bit too caught in the headlights to complain. I mean, I, <laughs> I'd have to have real cojones to, to, to on my first appearance go, whoa, whoa, David whoa. Tennant got it wrong. Stop Everyone's the recording. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ian, but David Tennant's fucked up my intro. This is, will not do. But, but did it, did it um, rattle you at all? No, I, I've come to expect that kind of introduction. I mean, with a name like with a name like Wang, and uh, um, and I only have myself to blame. I bang on about it so much about being called Wang. It's a it's kind of fair game. I don't mind about it. Um, again, ideally, the joke would be good. And um, did you did you relax into it? Were you that, oh, that yeah. headlights kind of feeling? Oh yeah. I, I mean, I've 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 recorded a couple of uh, panel showy, discussiony, freewheeling kind of things, and I am. On the whole, I've gotten better, but I'm pretty quiet for the first five, seven, ten minutes. Um, and then once I relax into it, I start enjoying it. With Have I Got News For You, it was a, I, you have a lot of space there in On Have I Got News For You. There's four panelists as opposed to six on all the shows. And above that, um, you're probably the only comedian. Mm-hmm. across from me was um, Janet Street Porter who's a comedian in a sense I guess but you feel like you have the space and um, Ian and Paul are so at home they're not going to jump over you to try and get their bit in mm-hmm. you know um, uh, what really helped with Have I Got News For You though was um, a bit of advice Diane Morgan gave me before I went on uh, where she she said they, they do they do a mic check before you start and they don't tell you this but you should do a joke and and this only and so I just I genuinely just prepared my club opener, and so and they 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 don't tell you they just, they just put a mic on you and go you can just test that out, and so if I didn't know I'd have, I've just gone uh, blah 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 yeah it seems to be on but because I then just did my um, opening gag I just got this laugh and then once you have that first laugh you just feel okay they're listening. I have, I'm a, I'm a valuable person. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get much stuff in when you look back at the edit? Did you think a reasonable amount of your stuff got in? Yeah, and I was there, happy. Were there bits that you thought, ah, oh, my great banana bit didn't make it? <laughs> no one ever likes my banana stuff. I don't know why. <laughs> it's yellow. It seems to make sense. Um, I, no, I was relatively happy. I was happier with the long edit because a few of my um, longer bits got in there. Because, um, you know, they do a half hour, then do a 45 minute version of oh yeah okay. have i got a bit more news for yes, you so i was, I was yeah. a bit happy with that because more of my stuff got in there um but yeah i was happy i was happy with it ian hislop was the nicest man he's just the sweetest guy um and i, I finally learned what because you know when you watch it at the end of rounds while the audience is applauding ian will just lean in to the guests and lean back um and he's leaning in to say, yeah, well done, that was really good. Um, I really like that joke about that. And he, you're so nothing, just, you're nothing, Wang. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you did that to other comedians, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but um, but he's, he's so nice, and so I, I, was, I felt completely at home. In terms of your stand-up, we touched briefly on, on your writing towards the show this year. How has your writing style changed? What does it look like when you write a show? Are you typing? Are you scribbling? Are you doing it all on stage? When I started... When I started doing stand-up, I literally typed it out prose in on Word, printed it out, and learned it as a script. Now <laughs> I write one word on my phone, and then I try and improv around it, maybe. I, I, I know I'll come up with at least two lines I know are technically jokes, um, and then I'll go up 
and I'll do the first joke, hopefully it gets a laugh, then I maybe talk around it, see if I can get any more laughs. And then I do the other bit. If I've remembered, there's another prepared joke, see what that gets. And then by sort of process of iteration and evolution, ideally these things sort of uh, like a cancer, like a tumor grow into a bit <laughs> that works. You know, so my cha- my writing changed. It's much more casual now. I don't. I I think I've got lazier. I don't know, but or just more at ease with being on stage and not knowing exactly what words I'm saying. And do you think your your shows have improved? Do you feel that you are a better stand up? I think I'm a better stand up. I think for my my hour long shows to improve, I need to bring back a little bit of what I started with and sitting down and writing stuff. I, I'm 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 relatively proud of my hour shows, but I don't think them, I think my sets are better. I don't think my hour shows hold together very well. Because they are bit, they're just an hour of bits, really, that I've tried to smush together. And so I think I need to bring back some of that old discipline of sitting down and writing things on paper and having things a little more concrete. One of your lines from the uh, Apollo set, you talked about your girlfriend being a vicar's daughter, mm. which is the atheist's ultimate victory. Yeah. <laughs> was that talked about just that was a particular light, that was a particular gem that stood out to me was that a sit down and write it or was that a tumble out of your mouth on stage that was a lo- my if if i have a one-liner it, it's usually come out just i've usually thought of it just as i've gone on stage i i i've st- i started going to gigs early because that's the that's the mindset where i actually write good jokes and that's the only time you're aware of the context these jokes are going to appear in and so you're in your most um uh, relevant state of mind and so I I, I I often turn up like an old rope is great for it I turn up a lot of the time with not enough and I just pace and try and think up jokes so the the vicar's daughter thing I think I thought of on in the dress, dressing room before I was about to go on and I made sure to say it um and then there's a bit that follows... In the dressing room of the Apollo? No, 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 no. I just I, thought I, I'd check that yeah, just, just going to free wheel my Apollo set at a club gig um and then there's a, the follow-up line after I say um, the atheist ultimate victory, where I go, "Take that God, old Wang snagged on your lambs." Now, take that God was I sat down and write. Old Wang snagged on your lambs was an improvisation. No, oh, no, old old Wang um, nagged one of your lambs. I made up before I got on stage at the comedy store recording, and I thought that might be funny. And I got on stage, and and, and then now that is the main punchline of that bit. Most of, most of my big punchlines are an afterthought and follow a failed initial punchline. That's reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what things do you do, in which areas of your stand-up do you most want to improve? Um, fluidity and things fitting together. It's all just a bit bitty. And I, I'm, I'm really terrible for not working on bits. Like I'll try a bit out once and that wording that i know is not good enough will stay that way for two years that is a really good i think a lot of us can level that criticism at ourselves yeah and i just i want that discipline of sitting down and because it takes a lot to take something that vaguely works and go no this this bit has to be adjusted and i have loads of bits where i get up to that point and then i remember oh crap this I haven't rewritten it yet. This bit of wording is really lazy. <laughs> it's vague. It doesn't really set up the point. Um, but what, I saw a thing with Chris Rock, I think, did an interview about his tips. And one of his main tips about jokes not working was work on the setup. 
a lot of the time it's just a setup is not clear and i have a lot of really unclear setups and i i then do the punchline and you'll get in like you'll get enough i go okay well that's as good as that joke's gonna go but a lot of the time if i just work on the setup it 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 improves the, the joke by tenfold so i think i think actually working on the setups is my is my main gripe with myself that i have really bad setups do you feel it's more important for you on stage to be killing or to be saying what you really feel properly, honestly exploring a, a dichotomy in your own life? What's the mo- which is the most important? If I'm doing a set killing, if I'm doing an hour that's meant to be an hour of who Phil Wang is, you know, then then it's more important to be interesting and honest. Um, you know, I think sometimes co- comedy is. It's, it, at different times, uh, it's it's uh, sometimes it's a job and sometimes it's your art. And I I try and recognize when it's a job and when it's a job, I just get the laughs and I get out. If if it's if it's something that I think is part of my art, then I'll then I'll maybe sacrifice some laughs for a for a more interesting point. But isn't isn't Edinburgh? What's the value then of Edinburgh to you? Isn't the value of Edinburgh to progress your career, or is it simply to spend a month noodling and you know, get doing the art bit. It started off as the career thing, definitely, um, and it, it, it's it's taken it's taken by us as compulsory. It just did not even to uh, to explode onto the scene, but just to stay relevant. You need to be up in Edinburgh, and so there's that element to it. But now I think I'm getting comfortable in myself and in what I do that I can use it to explore things. Like the, the show I'm working on at the moment is um, it started off as a joke to friends and to myself and now is actually what I'm writing the show about. Can you tell us what it is? It's it's a show in defense of the British Empire because I I'm from the British Empire and I genuinely think there's a lot there was a lot of good that came out of the British Empire. And at first I thought there's no way I can go on stage and try and sell the British Empire um it to a, a festival of liberals. But I think I th- I think I'm confident enough of myself now that i can see that as quite a fun challenge and i think if i can if i can bring i get most excited by making people feel a way they never thought they would or think of something in a way they they hadn't thought of before or realizing that they're actually shittier people than they thought they were i find that really exciting i think it's really funny that we're all uh, quite shitty people but we put on these airs i find that really funny um, but the the broader point of the show, I think, as it stands, is that we need to look at things more objectively and less emotionally. But I'm really looking forward to coming up with this and seeing if I can win people over. And I still don't know where I stand on the point um, of the British Empire. I think I think my point will be that things are too big and too complex to either be good or bad. Um, and uh, we are we are a part of a history. We must accept our history. We don't have to feel um, guilty, I think, for a history we were necessarily part of, but we need to accept our role in the effects of history. You know, and that, and, and, and that we, a lot of us who might think ill of the British Empire, something like the British Empire, do to this day still benefit from the spoils of the British Empire. And we need to be aware of that and move on, move forward with that knowledge. You know, learn from the mistakes of the past, but also accept your complicity in in what is a very very complex history of the human species i guess that's kind of the point 
that's that's the show I want to get to. But it needs to be funny. I mean, I need. I don't like chunks of Edinburgh shows that are just point, 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 and no laugh. I just think just do a TED talk. Then, I uh, yeah, yeah. The good, good, good question. Good point. I think. Um Someone, I forget who, someone said to me, you should have a theme to your show, but you should never tell anyone what it is. Like, okay, never can you d- cut out that last yeah. bit? That I- <laughs> <laughs> you should never say, oh no, I don't mean you'd, you'd never say it. It should be clear or it could be clear, but you don't need to say the point of this show is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Show don't tell, right? That's, yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's a golden rule with anyth- anything you create, um, that the point should be, that the, the point should be implicit. Um, and I, 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 do you I, ever? Do you think you might need to make it explicit for the sake of critics, who these days are all twelve? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I generally, I, I, I think I mean this. I generally don't care about reviews anymore. Do you read them? I do. Well, if I know it's good, I read it. Okay. If I think it might be bad, I don't. If if it hasn't been sent to me online, I don't. I don't look for it. Um, I, I. I know you. Th- I, d- I don't know what, how you feel about them. That you, f- you should be, you should read them all and have a balanced. No, 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 no. I don't read them at all. No. You don't read them at all. No. I f- taking me a long time to get there. I yeah. Well, we all have our own brain chemistries, right? And I I feel like my my self esteem is rattly enough that I I my shows only get better if I'm more confident. And if I just read good reviews, I just am better. I yeah. just am better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, that's a good point. And I don't gain anything from doubting the show, even if even if they have a valid point and a bad review. I I, I don't really gain anything from doubting the show, but I do gain a lot from really believing the show. And so I think that's for me. That's if that's someone the goes, best. It's five star review. Every word of it's glowing. You might as well have that in your back pocket. You might. What, what do you? Yeah, exactly. You benefit from not doing that. Yeah, I see where you're coming. From. As long as it doesn't make you arrogant or complacent about the show, but it, it's nice. It's nice to. I'm I'm always best when I'm confident about it or happy with it. If you were to take on an apprentice, <laughs> teach them to be a Phil Wang. Oh yeah. What thing would you be most gutted to see them do on stage ten years later? After you trained them up, this is how you do it. What thing could you see them do on stage that you'd be like, oh I've wasted my time? Um Finishing a bit that didn't get a great laugh, and then going, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just so it's so easy to fall into something like that. But you know, from watching other people do it, it just it it has a disastrous effect on what the audience thinks of you. So I, I guess that if I have had to think of one now, um, doing a show about how lovely the world is. The how everything's really lovely. I, I don't like that. I don't like things being called lovely. If I'm the very, um, uh, if they went to clown school, <laughs> I disown them like a, like any good parent would. <laughs> uh, why is that specifically? I don't know. I'm I'm just I'm just being a bit of a shithead. I I've um um I don't buy into the the whole inner child thing, and I I resent when sort of more inner childy alti acts sort of pour scorn on stand-ups for being too serious 
I just think like it's not my fault I moved on you know (laughs) (laughs) do you know I was listening before I did the Tim Minchin interview recently I was listening back to some of his stuff and there is an incredible Pearl Jam parody it's just one line he's doing his kind of you know I, I, I can't remember the name. It's Dark Side. The song is Dark Side. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No, I'm sorry. And at the end, he does all of these different types of kind of rock parody lines within it. And he's talking about how he could have a dark side if you want him to. He does an impression of Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam singing, I'm really upset about some stuff that happened in the past. <laughs> I heard that and I suddenly stopped loving Pearl Jam quite so much. Oh, no. I took a really, a very quick, very hard look at... Um, because uh, well, that just boils down what the whole thing is yeah well no it, uh, it really skewers something I was using that music to wallow in during my adolescence yeah and it really made me go oh that's what all of those songs were doing but you need that in your adolescence don't you oh 100% I, 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 should say, I don't like them any less it just makes them it makes them a slightly guiltier pleasure than they were before like I only really found out about the Smiths when I was 23 and from friends who loved them as teenagers and listened to it and I just couldn't get into it but I knew that it's just the wrong time. If I listened to that stuff at fourteen, fifteen, it would have really struck a chord. But it was just a bit too late for me. And I think there are, you know, we all had our Green Day phase. You know, <laughs> we all listened to Good Charlotte for a week. Why not? Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, a young person. <laughs> I don't know who Good Charlotte are. <laughs> no one does anymore. I wouldn't put one. That's okay. <laughs> thanks, Phil. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me, Stu. Oh, comedy gravestone. Oh, what would you have engraved on you? What's your final message to comedy after you um, die? Oh, it'd probably just be my Twitter handle. I, I don't really. Have, <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd have more followers by now. <laughs> so that was Phil. Thank you so much to Phil for coming along. Uh, thank you to my team of logging legends for uh, taking care of the logging for that episode. Thank you to Daryl Smith for his help in editing the podcast. Thank you to you, anyone that's donated at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate or does so after the recording of this message. Um, I will chat to you in a moment. Remember, Rachel Paris from last week's episode is at Soho Theatre on the 6th to the 8th of March, and I think you'll enjoy that. The 20th of February is Mr. Paul Chowdhury live at Soho Theatre on this podcast. And I will talk to you more about the tour in the postamble. Suffice to say, if you're in Crawley, Brighton, Dublin, Manchester, Exeter, Bath, Harrogate, Birmingham, Hull, Shrewsbury and Bristol, I am coming to perform some top quality stand-up. The reviews are in. The I newspaper described me as a master of the form. That's not bad, right? That's like an actual, that's like an actual, oh, I'll probably use that for a couple of years. That's, that's good to know. Um, so it's, it's good stuff. I mean, whenever I'm doing live stuff and I refer to this podcast to people that don't know about it, I say things like, it's had over six and a half million downloads, so it is objectively good. Um, I don't know what the equivalent thing is to say to you, but I hope you listen to that little the freebie gift of my, my stand-up hour. I hope you've sort out my stuff online. I know that the, uh, the Alan Davies show, the, the As Yet Untitled, that I appeared in, that's recently been replayed in, in the UK. So maybe you've seen me being funny on those sorts of things. I'm not just uh, a good listener guys i've got some gear i've got some sweet gear so come and check out that gear at any of those places all of the dates as you know are at comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour and the tour is now underway i'll tell you more about that in a moment but if that's your lot there'll be another episode next week with someone fabulous it's already in the can i think next week we're doing mark forward i think we are next week is that right mark forward then the one with paul then the eight nine then the mystery guest for episode 200 who I accidentally revealed on the website a couple of people guessed on the Facebook group and uh, keep it yourself until it's out I'm not going to 
go for it until that one's in the can. But I can't wait, and I'm researching my little bollocks off. Bye for now. <laughs> so, couple of things: one lovely daft thing, and one uh, one less lovely, less daft thing. Well, daft in a nice way. Um, uh, well, what was the what was the lovely thing? Oh, that's awful! What a, what a setup! Go, oh, a nice thing, and then a tough thing. Can't remember the nice thing. My granny passed away. She went. She finally went. My unkillable granny, who I've told jokes about since I became a comic. Um, lovely, lovely Vera. Not her real name. Um, one of the first jokes I ever wrote that, I used to say, and this is on, um, it's on Extra Life. The stuff is on, the material about her is on Extra Life. And there is some material about her on An Hour as well, about her dementia. And, uh, and lots of issues to do with her and her indomitable nature and she passed away and uh please don't send me any sympathy for that that's okay i will take it as read that you care and that's kind of you i i um uh i uh make a donation to something make a donation to a dementia charity rather than uh email me the equivalent of flowers um thank you i appreciate it i will yeah i'll, I'll take it as read i i sort of don't want to get into a uh hey man kind of thing don't, don't worry about that because um, I know you guys care and I, I appreciate it but it's one of those things where it will occasionally just keep jumping out the woodwork and hitting me as John Hegley once said like a shovel in the features <sighs> it's um yes that, that wasn't that wasn't my point I was, <laughs> the whole bit isn't hey please don't get in touch please no, no charisma commiserations please but it is I'd never here's a thing God love her I had, I've written so many jokes about her. One of my favorite jokes about her that I ever wrote was that she's so strong and so internally, like her intestinal fortitude was so tremendous that I've only ever seen her cry once. And, and I, in the bit I said, I swear, and obviously this is artistic license, but it almost, it was poetic license. I remember seeing her shed one tear and in the bit I say, and it, she, she noticed it, it stopped and then it sucked back up into her face. She was the toughest woman i've ever known and i don't mean that in a disciplinarian way we didn't always see eye to eye when i was a, a teenager um but she you know she was the matron of a, a, a girl's boarding school at one point so um she obviously had uh, she could turn on the authority when she needed to but she was tough in a in an indomitable spirit of the human will kind of a way you can um you can imagine her surviving anything and she did she, she had some profoundly tough things happen to her in her life and she used to laugh and laugh we'd go and visit her me and my partner and uh, very glad she got to meet the Boutros just the once we got a couple of pictures of her with the Boutros and she thought he was delightful that was very sweet um and so I'm in the room with her. I got there. I went up to see her. We got the red alert thing, which we've been getting for months. This is why I used to write jokes about her, because she kept getting three months to live over and over and over again and defying medical science. And I, we got another, like a serious, oh, this is, this is a separate thing that's happened. It's actually probably going to, to polish her off. So I legged it up to the Midlands where she was in a, a wonderful nursing home. It was so lucky and so pleased to have had her looked after in that place um and uh, i got there half an hour late and she'd passed away and she i think she had passed away from having been on serious morphine for a day or two so uh, it wasn't like i'd missed her really um and uh, there she was and i'd never been i sound i sounds awful to say a dead body 
but I'd never been near, I'd never seen a dead body before. And I saw her, her ex self, you know, she'd gone, she wasn't there anymore. And obviously the wrinkles on her face had relaxed a bit, I think, or I'd, or I'd heard about that happening and sort of Im- Im- imposed that onto my vision of her. Um, and I got just sort of five minutes with her when my mum, my sister left the room and gave me a little chance to say goodbye. And it was a very beautiful thing. I was so glad to have had that time rather than just to have turned up and gone, nope, she's gone, she's been carted off. And I touched her on the shoulder and she was warm. And I, her hands were over her chest underneath a blanket and I put my hand on top of the blanket just to sort of touch her I used to love her knuckles she had the most arthritic twisted fingers that had worked she had fingers that could claw coal out of the ground and uh, and I didn't sort of touch the skin on her fingers this mottled skin that she had on her on her I'm going to say claw like she won't mind I mean they were they were fantastic spindly things such fighters knuckles you know and uh, and so I put my hand on top of the blanket on top of there and sort of had a little chat to her and it was a really valuable thing and if you ever are in a situation like this as I'm sure many of you will have been and will be in the future I really saw the value in spending a bit of time with her ex-self with her with her vehicle now empty of her and I said to her you know I sort of said out loud not I'm not religious and I said out loud if you're if you're in the room somehow if you're hanging around and then I just laughed at myself and I thought you never hung around as if you'd be hanging around on to the next thing let's get it done let's deal with this let's do it properly um and the weirdest thing and this is gonna say I don't mean for this to sound disrespectful at all but this occurred to me I have spent an awful lot more I've spent a lot less time watching beautiful, bleak movies in which people die than I have watching supernatural slash zombie movies. And honestly, it was quite difficult to touch her on the shoulder in case she said, of course she's not a zombie. Of course she's not going to do anything. You hear stories about movement, shifting movement in bodies for whatever reason. She was on an inflatable bed that kind of had a, every so often we go, you know, and kind of let some air out. And we go, oh God, as if it's, as if, with her breathing again or a rattle of some sort something like that but i part of me was just like don't this is a ludicrous thing to think but i feel like she might suddenly be pretending and suddenly go you know it was so strange it's the weirdest thing in the world and the most natural thing in the world how odd is that how odd is that to think that that's it that's that's her done. She's out of there and so it wasn't her anymore and obviously you want to treat the the body with respect but it's it's not hers anymore. She's given it up, and it's gone. And there's uh, a funeral, obviously, on the way, and I'm going to say a few words, and I'm not going to do any of my material about her. I did then in, in pool. Anyone that came to the gig in pool, I did. I kind of uh, repri- reprised some of my favourite granny material and then cried at the end, us ruining the final joke. Um, if you want to hear that stuff on Extra Life, have a razz on that. It's um, uh, I'm not flogging the album, but... It's it's some good stuff that I'm proud of that I think sums her up. And there was one joke which I could never do about her, and I can't tell you what it is either. It's a oh god, it's a good joke. If you meet me in person, ask me what it was. Um, it's a it's probably the most beautiful joke I've ever written. But it it was about something difficult that happened to her, and it wasn't mine to do. But I I loved having that joke, and I, I just I feel very blessed. I feel very I blessed suggests someone is doing the blessing. I feel very lucky. I feel hugely lucky to be 
in a position where I can walk on stage and not just blow off steam by complaining about the early mornings I'm doing with my baby, but also celebrate the life of someone who was very, very important to me. And the idea is I was there with her body. I was there sort of saying, you know, you've gone all around the world, Granny. You've, she's traveled all around the world and I've done my stuff about her literally all over the world. And, and I was able to talk about her and, and love her with my jokes and uh, and people really responded to that and laughed and there was some there's some really beautiful stuff there and it might seem sort of churlish or, or kind of giddy that that was how I related to her obviously I also had a personal friendship and familiar family relationship with her and all of those things um, but which was very strong and very very good but she used to laugh here's a story about her listen you you know it's only very quick and let's just assume that you'd like to hear it or have the option of turning off i oh can i tell this does this betray a confidence not really no it doesn't i went to um i went when she was in hospital she spent a long time in hospital and she was in a particular hospital they kept saying she's not long for it she won't be around for long and then she kept surprising them. there was one christmas maybe four years ago where they said she's not going to make christmas by that february end of february she was in hospital. She'd been there for months. We thought she was going to pass away in hospital. And I went to see her. And of course, I have a lot of free time or had <laughs> had free pre-baby had free time during the day or flexible time, let's say. So I went to see her and I said to the nurse, I said to her, we should kind of take you outside. It's the first day of spring out there. It's a beautiful, sunny day. Would you like to go outside? And she said, yes. Ah, yes. And so I went and found the sister or the matron, whoever it is, the nurse in charge, one of the nurses, and said, can I take her outside? And she went, I, oh, I don't know. And I said, well, I'm, I'm still here. I still want to do it. Can you find out with it? If you don't know, can you find out? She went and got the head nurse of that thing, and she said, oh, I don't know. And I said, no, but I, I'm, you know, I'm, I've got some free time here. I'm going to hang around and sort of be awkward until we get this done. She said, oh, we'll need a porter. I said, no, I'll go find a porter. And she went, oh, okay. It became clear. You know what I mean? I felt like I was able to use the fact of my free time to... Um, uh, to make something happen, probably by bothering people who had better things to do. But no, I was on my mission. I managed to take her out into an ambulance bay. They said, listen, if you hear a siren, you rattle her back inside as soon as you can because you shouldn't be out here. But here we go. We snuck out. We're in an ambulance bay. She felt the sun on her face and she smiled. Maybe I'm editing in the smile, but it was nice. It was like a, ah, oh, there we go. And then two little old ladies from her sheltered accommodation they came around the corner and they said cooey it's us and she looked up at me and she muttered oh god not these take me back in (laughs) oh lover anyway bye bye granny thanks for listening to this um what a wonderful lady and what a lucky guy i am to be able to tell everyone about her that's a nice thought to end on ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 